up God's word with you all and learn from it and prayerfully be transformed by it, which we'll get to do together uh, in a little bit here. Um, But before we even jump into the scripture that we have for this morning, if you're unaware, I just wanted to make you aware and invite you to to join with me in prayer. Uh, This particular Sunday is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, a Sunday in which we press into the fact that God is the God of the living and that God is the God of life and life at all stages. Now, uh, abortion has become somewhat of a, not somewhat, it's become a very heavy political rallying point. And in some ways, that's good. We have people that are fighting for uh, the rights of the unborn. But in some ways, that has been somewhat uh, detrimental just in the fact that it actually lessens the importance of uh, the fight for life, because it's greater than just a political fight it's a, it's a thing that God desires uh, for us to care about and to be about. And so in light of that, I would just invite you to pray with me this morning. Jesus, we pray that you would grant us the courage and compassion to live as faithful advocates for human sanctity and life in all its stages. We long for the day when death shall be no more particularly this morning, when the death of the unborn shall be no more. Lord, grant us gospel compassion to love and care for women and men whose stories are marked by abortion. Only the gospel can bring healing, and only the gospel can transform lives and hearts to see the darkness of abortion and combat it with the truth of the living God. So may we be faithful witnesses and agents of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining with me in that. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Mark chapter 12. Uh, If you've got your devices or phones, you can find your way over to Mark chapter 12. We're now in week three of our sermon series uh, on the end of Mark, Mark chapters 11 through 16. And by now, hopefully, you you can say the name of the sermon series. Anybody? Baruch Habab Hashem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In these final chapters of Mark, the story of Jesus comes to a close in a highly climactic way. If you, if you ever read through the Gospel of Mark, you might notice he keeps saying immediately, immediately, immediately. He kind of rushes until we get to chapters 11 through 16. And this is basically just one week, five chapters, one week of Jesus' life. Um, Jesus enters Jerusalem in Mark 11 to the delight of the crowds who are crying this phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But as the story progresses, we come to see that the crowds don't really understand what Jesus is there to do. He's about to become a curse for us and be killed as a criminal. When the crowd cried, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they were excited because they wanted Jesus on their own terms. They wanted the coming king to meet their expectations and play by their rules. So ultimately, they will reject Jesus. And we're going to see today specifically that the religious leaders of that time exemplify the rejection of 
Jesus. Because by the end of chapter 11, if you've been tracking with us, we uh, heard from Pastor Joel last week, and uh, we saw the end of chapter 11 there, that, that some of the religious leaders are gathered around Jesus. You've got the chief priests, you've got the scribes, and, and you have the, uh, the elders. The, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, they've gathered together, and they're questioning the authority of Jesus. Why? What's motivating them to question that authority? It's pretty evident that uh, what's motivating them is that Christ's authority undermines their authority. And they can't have that. See, God had given the religious leaders of of Israel the, the privilege of reigning under God's good rule. It was a gift that God had given to these religious leaders to shepherd the people and point them to God. But they don't want that. They want to be the rulers. And that begs the question, main question for us this morning is, are you content to reign under the rule of the Lord? For the religious leaders, the the answer seemed no. They were not content to reign under the rule of the Lord. They wanted to be the rulers. But it's not just a story about them and how bad they were. The question for us this morning is, are we content to reign under the rule of the Lord? Or do we want to be the rulers this morning. And so I'd like to invite you to stand as we read from Mark 12, verses 1 through 12. And in it, we encounter a parable. A parable. I was practicing all week. <laughs> and I kept saying parable, parable. And I said, all right, I got to fix that for Sunday. And clearly that did not work. <laughs> There's a parable here in which Jesus gives a clear and a harsh indictment of the religious leaders in this story. And this indictment shows that their answer is no. They, they are not content to reign under the rule of the Lord. But the question for us today is, what about, what about you? What about us? So with that in mind, let's read Mark 12, verses 1 through 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it dug out a pit for it, built a tower, and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed, and so with many others, some they beat And some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. The word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, search our hearts and reveal any ways in which we reject 
the good rule of Jesus. May our hearts gladly submit to the rule of Jesus with joy and participate in the redemptive work of reigning under his rule. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So as we work through this parable this morning, we're going to look at a few different elements that are present in it as we answer that question of are we content to reign under the rule of the Lord. So we'll look at the vineyard. We'll look at those tenants that were taking care of it. We'll look at the landlord. And then at the end, the unhindered purposes of God. And so uh, let's dive right into the vineyard found as it's introduced right away in the parable. Now, a quick note on parables. Often when we see parables in Scripture, the, the way that we tend to interpret them is there's one main point. The parable kind of just means one thing, um, and, and sometimes we may get into trouble trying to interpret parables by, by trying to find a one-to-one relationship of every single element in the parable. Now, I say that because this is somewhat of an exception to that rule this morning, that there are very clear parallels to historical things that that Jesus is drawing on here in this parable. And you do tend to see that in the longer parables, you can pull out some elements that have kind of a one-to-one metaphoric relationship. Okay, so just wanted to say that up front, that, that this is not a typical parable, and that's because it's longer and because some of the elements are very clear that they're pointing to uh, some metaphorical things. And so we're starting with the vineyard. We can uh, read verse 1 again. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Now the imagery here in the vineyard is going to hit on a few different levels. One of the first levels that we see in the vineyard is we see the vineyard as creation. If you pay attention to the verbs that are used there, he planted he, he dug a fence, he, he dug up, or he put a fence up, he, he dug a pit, he built a tower, and then he leased it. He, he gave it to somebody uh, and to a group of people to, to, to kind of cultivate it. That's exactly how God acts in creating the world. See, that word there for planted is not uh, the typical word for planted. It's, it's a more rare word. It has a special connotation of begetting something and bringing about its creation. So in the Garden of Eden, God created. He set the hedge around the garden. He provided everything that the caretakers would need, and then he gave the garden to the caretakers, to Adam and Eve. To do what? Genesis 1, to work and to keep it, to reign under God's rule. God had done it all. He, planted, he dug it out. He, he did everything to create it and gave it, gifted it to the caretakers and said, I've, I've made this. Now work it and keep it. Be fruitful and, and multiply. They didn't plant the garden. They were given it and given the privilege of tending to it according to the will of the master. And so as we continue to read the parable and we see the rebellion of those tenants, we see the rebellion of Adam and Eve. That no, they were not content to reign under God's rule. That was the first sin. Was, oh, I could become like God. I don't need to reign under his rule. I could be the ruler. So we see this vineyard as creation. 
but more specifically, kind of as a, a microcosm of creation, we see the vineyard as God's people. And, and look at what Isaiah 5 says. I'll, I'll put it up here on the screen for us. But the, the parallels are striking that we, we can't ignore it. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? See the clear parallels there of the vineyard and the digging it out and setting the watchtower and then something goes wrong with the vineyard. The religious leaders would hear Jesus' parable and instantly think of that passage from Isaiah. This idea of God's people being a vineyard uh, that God had established was also just common in Old Testament thought. It's not the only place, but Isaiah is, is the clearest example. What's new in Jesus' usage of the imagery, though, is that in Isaiah, the vineyard, God's people as a whole, produce bad fruit. But in Jesus' parable, he goes a different route and he says, the farmers, the tenant workers that the Lord leased the vineyard out to were greedy, wicked, and morally bankrupt. And, and clearly he's talking about the religious leaders. He's saying, I planted this vineyard, I created this people, and then I leased it to the leaders. God gave the Torah, he gave the priesthood, he, he gave the prophets, he gave it to the leaders. And the leaders used it for their own gain and sought not to reign under God's rule, but to be the rulers themselves. So Jesus is saying, well, why did the, why did the vineyard in Isaiah 5 yield bad fruit? He's indicting the leaders. It's because the leaders led them to that. So he's indicting those religious leaders for rejecting the rule of God and showing what happens when they do that. God, we can do things better than you. Well, what does that produce? A bunch of wild grapes. Sounds like sour wine to me. No, thank you. It's a heavy indictment against the religious leaders. God created the people of Israel. He established them. He gave this gift of being vice regents, reigning under the good rule. He's the landowner, and the leaders were meant to be his representatives. The issue, as we're about to see, is that the leaders did not like that setup. They didn't want to reign under God's rule. They wanted to rule. They didn't want derivative authority. They wanted absolute authority. Let's take a look at the tenants and the landowner in the parable to better understand this. So the tenants and the landowner, this is kind of the bulk of the parable here, verses 2 through 9. Like I said, though, this isn't just a look at how bad those religious leaders were and are. This may very well be an indictment on our own hearts as well. Because we're going to see the attitudes that these tenants, these religious leaders have. And we're going to recognize that we may be tempted to have those same attitudes. 
So let's look, starting in verse 2. At this time uh, in, in Galilee, wealthy landowners uh, would set up vineyards and, uh, or other agricultural ventures and then leave them to tenant farmers. The landowners would receive a certain amount of profit, but the tenant farmers often received pretty good compensation as well. Uh, so the tenant farmers were reigning under the rule of the landowner. Obviously, their job was to submit to the landowner and accomplish his wishes with the land. So in light of that, uh, we can start in, in verse 2. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Okay? And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. See, that's, that's key. That reveals the attitude. We want it. They were given the gift of reaping the produce, but they wanted the property. Come, let's kill him. The, in the inheritance will become ours. It won't be on lease anymore. We will own it. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. There is no context of, oh, in the ancient Near East world or in this setting here, uh, it makes sense that tenant farmers would would treat servants shamefully and kill them to try to get the inheritance. You know, you have parallels to this. No. This story is insane. If you read it and go, this doesn't make any sense, the, the tenant farmers, what were they thinking? Oh, if we kill his son, we'll definitely get the, the land. No, that doesn't make any sense. You may also even be thinking, what's the landowner doing? What? He, he sends servant after servant. Oh, let me send my son. They're going to treat him better, aren't they? What? No, the, the whole story doesn't, it, it's, it's nuts. I mean, picture... Somebody buys an estate on Lake Minnetonka. Okay. I've been in Minnesota for you know, 16 months. I know a thing or two. Lake Minnetonka's kind of nice. Someone buys an estate there, builds a beautiful home, builds a guest home on the estate. This, this individual does not live in the state of Minnesota. So they come to you and say, I've got a proposition. Live in this home that I've built on Lake Minnetonka. I've set up an Airbnb with the guest house. It's lucrative. It's self-sustaining. It's got great reviews. People are using it all the time. All you need to do is just 10 hours a month maintaining that, checking in with the people that I've got working on it, and, and you can live here. Okay, decent gig. On top of that, you get 50% of the proceeds from the Airbnb. Okay. That sounds, okay, I'll sign. Let's do it. One day the owner uh, says, hey, uh, calls you up. Hey, I'm, I'm sending some interior designers to the guest home. They're going to repaint some of the walls. All right, just make sure they, they I, I, I've instructed them to use this green color. Make sure that they use that right color. You show up, you say, okay, got it. And then you, you talk to the interior designer and say, actually, we should paint these walls blue. 
So let's choose a different color and we'll paint the walls blue. Would any of you do that? That doesn't make any sense. That's still not as bad as this story. Okay? This story would be like, next thing you know, the landowner is checking his bank account and, oh, the money from the Airbnb is no longer being put into my account. Does a little bit digging and finds out you've rerouted all the proceeds to go to you. Huh. That's interesting. He calls you up and you say, oh, yeah, well, I mean, I've been living here long enough. So, I mean, this place is mine now, right? That's this story. That's insane. That's nuts. The land in the vineyard is rightfully the landowner's. There was some contract that stipulated how much profit the owner would extract. But what did the tenants do? They beat the servant and send him away empty-handed. And so the owner sends more. They strike them, bring them shame, even kill some. Again, we don't have a lot of uh, parables in which you can make these different elements look like, uh, or draw references to, to specific things. But this is clearly a reference to the many prophets that God sent to Israel through the years and the horrendous ways in which many of those prophets were treated by Israel's leaders. You think of Jeremiah being thrown into a cistern. You think of other prophets who were killed. This is a clear reference to that. Israel's leaders have always had this issue of wanting to be the rulers and rebelling against God and his true servants. This parable shows just how insane that is because it's all God's. God established all of creation. God established his people Israel. God set up the vineyard. God made the whole thing. God set the leaders in places of authority to reign under his rule, yet they want to be the rulers. And there's a wordplay here in verses 2 and 3 that this servant is sent to take the fruit of the vineyard. Those same two words appear in the opposite order. So the servant is sent to take the fruit of the vineyard, and instead, insanely, the tenants take, that's the same word for uh, receiving the fruit of the vineyard, take the servant, and same word, send him away empty-handed. So the servant is sent to them for a purpose, to take, and instead of taking the fruit, the servant himself gets taken and then sent away empty-handed. And that highlights the wholesale rejection of the landowners, in, uh, of, the, uh, of the landowner's will. In fact, it shows a pursuit of the exact opposite of everything about the master and his desires. He sent him for a purpose to take the fruit of the vineyard. Instead, in an opposite way, the, the servant was taken and then sent away empty-handed. It's the exact opposite of everything that the master desires. And it, it's just wrong. Some they beat, others they killed. And then it culminates in verse 7. They say, let's kill his son. Then the land will be ours. It's senseless. It's insane. It's the insanity of the tenants. But it's not just them. This is each and every one of us, all that we have has been entrusted to us from the Lord. All that we have, it's on lease to be used for his purposes. Our lives, our relationships, our marriages, our children, our careers, our time, our money, it's his. But sometimes we don't like that, do we? We don't want to lease it. We want to own it. 
so that we call the shots and we make the rules and we reap all the benefits. I don't want to reign under God's rule. I want to be the ruler and set my own rules. God, you can have some of my money and some of my time, but I can't give you my career. I've worked too hard for it. I want to rule. I want control. I want the money. I want the influence. I want to be the source of my own security. I want profit. I want recognition. I want glory. And so I will stop at nothing to gain that, no matter how senseless it is. And so all of us, because of the sin nature that we are born with, all of us have hearts that would act like these tenants. All of us that would go so far as to kill the owner's son if it meant that we could take the reins. Would go so far as to put Jesus on the cross if it meant that we ourselves could be king of our own little kingdoms. The insanity of the tenants brings up the apparent insanity of the landowner. His, his insanity seems almost greater. Who, who would do that? <laughs> I've sent you servant after servant after servant. I know the dangers that I'm sending my son into. I know the type of people that these tenants have proved themselves to be. Who would do that? God would. Because of his compassion. knowing full well that his son would be mistreated as such, knowing full well what would happen, God had given his people the gift of life, the gift of his word, the prophets, divine revelation, the promise of a forever kingdom. God had gifted his people all of those things and more. He had given and given and given to a people who had taken and taken and taken and rejected him and rebelled against him and sought to thwart his purposes. Yet after having given and given all of these things and facing all of that rejection, he still did not withhold even his son. The apparent insanity of the landowner actually communicates to us the senselessness in a good sense of grace. Grace doesn't make sense. That's the point. For God to continue to give in the face of rebellion doesn't make sense. We we need to understand that it doesn't make sense in order for it to somewhat start to make sense. That our sin, that the insanity of our sin, God can be, well, he's not insane, but God can act in a seemingly more insane way. A better way to say it is where sin runs deep, grace runs deeper still. knowing exactly what he was giving his son over to. It's the exact opposite of what we deserve. See, God is sovereign over everything. Knowing that humankind would continually rebel against him and knowing that the leaders and the people would put Jesus on the cross, God sent his son Why? 
Because God used that rebellion. He used that rejection of his people to bring salvation to the world. He he didn't do it senselessly. He knew exactly what was happening. It's miraculous. God can take the utmost of rejection, the utmost of rebellion, and he actually uses that rebellion for his purposes. He knows his son will be rejected and killed. Unlike the landowner in this parable, God can take that and use it to bring salvation. That brings up the unhindered purposes of God. See, Jesus quotes Psalm 118 at the end of the parable there, verses 10 and 11. He says, have you not read this scripture? And here we go. The scripture predicting that God would, the very rejection and rebellion that God knew would happen, God would use to establish his people. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected. Jesus Christ himself. Has become the cornerstone. And in case it wasn't clear that this is God's purpose, Jesus finishes the quote from that psalm. This was the Lord's doing. The tenants may have thought, we know what we're doing. We're going to do something great here. God goes, no, 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 no. I'm going to use that. That son of mine that you kill, he's actually going to become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The senseless rebellion, the outright rejection, the slaying, uh, the servants, and finally the son, none of that could thwart God's will. Instead, God used those very things to bring about salvation. He knew that Christ, the stone, would be rejected, but he also knew that Christ, having risen from the dead, would be the cornerstone for the building of his people. It's baffling that God could take the rebellion and the rejection of his people and use that to bring about a salvation offered not just to his people, but to the entire world, as the psalmist says, and we must agree, it's marvelous in our eyes. We receive this salvation when we are willing to recognize that God is the master, that he is the ruler, and we have the privilege to reign under his rule. So long as we're okay with that, are you content to reign under the rule of the Lord? Now, As we consider this final question, I'll invite the band to come up. Are you content to reign under the rule of the Lord? After having seen the insanity of rejection and rebellion against him, the question we must ask ourselves this morning is, is my heart okay with God calling the shots? Is my heart okay with Jesus being Lord? Can I genuinely say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and mean it on God's terms? 
Am I okay with humbling myself and saying, God, it's yours. What you've given me is not mine. What you've given me is the privilege to reign under your rule. The opportunities, the relationships, the wealth, whatever I have in my life, that's you giving that to me on lease so that I would use it for your purposes, not mine. Are we willing to say that wholeheartedly this morning? Or will we embody the same attitude that the religious leaders embodied? Of No, I want it. It's mine. I want it all. And I want it for my purposes. Are you content to reign under the rule of the Lord? If your answer is no, it's, it's a... That's an outright rejection of Jesus. We see right in verse 12, right at the end, the religious leaders, the last sentence, so they left him and went away. Those words are the same exact words used in Mark 1. Except it's when Jesus calls the disciples. The disciples leave everything else and follow Christ. Here, the religious leaders leave Christ and go the other way. To say, no, I'm not content to reign under your rule is to outright reject Christ Jesus. Don't reject the good king. If you want to, you have become united with Christ by faith, which means you've become an heir. Good news, but also, what happened to the heir in this story? And what can you expect in your life as you accept Christ's rule and decide, I'm going to be your servant, Lord? It's not going to be easy. And we may face rejection. Because Christ did. So how do we respond to that? Jesus teaches clearly in the Sermon on the Mount to not repay evil for evil. So if you, if you want to follow Jesus, praise God. That's a great gift to receive. But church, know that it's going to be difficult. And so when it's difficult and when you face rejection, know this was the will of the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. I don't know, some of you may be facing that even now, but when you face rejection for the Lord Jesus as you seek to make him the ruler, you may be tempted to doubt and go, well, okay, when Christ is the ruler, uh, things don't seem to go well. I may get overlooked for a promotion at work. I may get rejected by my friends and my family. This is the will of the Lord. It is marvelous in our eyes. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. If you are facing rejection, if you are facing hardship, keep on. It may in fact be a sign that you are submitting to the good rule of the Lord in your life. And he is a good God. And you know what that landowner did? He went and he totally obliterated what was going on in the rejection and in the rebellion. And he created something new. And that's our hope this morning.
So reigning under God's rule then in a few practical ways looks like this. First, it's putting on a humility that seeks God's kingdom and not our own. Not my will, but yours be done in my relationships, my work, my free time, my money, my thoughts. Not my will, but yours be done. It means putting on compassion. Like the father, like the landowner that sacrifices everything even for those who mistreat us. Church, are, how strong of a witness is it to Christ Jesus that even in the face of rebellion and rejection, our hearts do not become cold but remain on fire for those who don't know the Lord. What a witness it is to the compassion of the father if we would follow Jesus. And when we make it about his will and not our own, that it's still difficult, but it makes it doable and a little bit easier to say, okay, in the face of rejection, I will continue to have compassion even on those who are rejecting the Lord and rejecting me because of it. That brings glory to the Father. That is a good work. Continue on in that. Finally, by putting our hope in Jesus, the cornerstone. Are you content to reign under his rule. We're going to ask that question as we prepare our hearts for communion, as we remember just how worthy Christ is for us to submit to his good rule, just how good he is that he would go to the cross for our sake. Now, as we approach communion, uh, communion is for the, the believer, for those of us who have put our faith in Christ Jesus, who are trusting in him for the forgiveness of sins. Those of us who have recognized that just like the wicked tenants, we wanted it all and we rejected God, but yet he, he, while we were still sinners, Christ still died for us to make a way back to him. So if you've received that this morning, communion is open for you and we encourage you to go before the Lord and ask that question, God, this morning, Am I content to reign under your rule? Are there any parts of my life where I am seeking to own it, where I am seeking to steal it, where I am seeking my will and not yours? We, we need to ask that question as we approach the table. Because as we approach the table and par participate in communion, we are celebrating what Christ has done, but in that same moment, we are also together uh, confessing to the Lord are the king and we will submit and we want to do your will and we want to make sure our hearts truly say that this morning and it's okay if you find an area of your life where God I've, I've been trying to take this from you that's what the table's for Christ died for that he bled for that there's forgiveness and the Holy Spirit allows us then to turn from that and to find the joy of walking with the Lord